Let's do uh, 1 John 4, 16 through 21. That's right, scripture reading, yeah? Okay. Uh, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Good morning. Glad to have everybody out today, especially uh, visitors. It's a, it is a uh, sad time in the sense that we're going to not see the ladies in the harbors for a while, and Ben and Nettie too, not too long from now. Um, but we, we love having y'all back when you're able to come back. And we love having all of our visitors here uh, from the Healing Transitions facilities and, and elsewhere from the community. Um, our theme for the year at this church, as we've said uh, over and over this year, is 1 John 4, 19. We basically just took this verse, didn't even try to reword it. We love because He first loved us. Because God first loved us, we respond to that by loving uh, in the same way. God is, God's love for us is the motivation for our love, but it's also the model for our love. And it's the measure of, of whether we're loving appropriately. In other words, it's the standard for our behavior. As we began to see last week, um, there are several times in 1 John that the text speaks of love of something as something that is being perfected. You can see several of those right here in the paragraph that Daniel just read. Love is being perfected. By this is love perfected. Perfect love casts out fear. Uh, we're being perfected in love. Here and elsewhere in, in the letter, it talks about love being perfected. God is doing something in us. He's developing this, completing this, perfecting it within us. Rather than love being something that comes to us, you know, divine love instantaneously when we become Christians, it's something that over time He is perfecting or completing in us. And uh, so that's what we've been talking about um, in, in this little two-part series, uh, of which this is part two. Love perfected. When God created human beings, uh, I think we can see this in Scripture, but we can even see it in our own experience. It's very obvious. Um, if you're raising children, you know this to be true abundantly, and that is that God didn't make robotic machines. He made volitional creatures, creatures that have will. Amen? Any parents of toddlers? Um, we can choose. We can choose our response to God. Uh, he left that open to us. He made us that way. And so while God wants to see us, uh, see His love perfected in us, He's not going to do that without our participation without our complicity in the matter. So today we continue to examine what a complicit response to God's love looks like. And we're calling this, as 1 John does, love perfected. All right? And and so what we're trying to do in this little two-part series is to look at what the end goal to which love, God's love in us is continually being perfected. What what does that end goal look like? Trying to portray, a, I guess, a kind of portrait of that using the four things that in 1 John 
uh, are aspects of this perfected love. So just a brief review here for a couple of minutes in case you weren't here last week or even if you were. Uh, last week you saw that perfect love involves, first of all, keeping God's word. Keeping God's word. Um, in, in 1 John 2, 5, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And the corollary of that would be if we're not bothering with his word, if we've lost interest in the scripture, uh, we're not having his love perfected in us. That's a necessary quality of that. And I think there is a trend in parts of, of Christianity, at least in our part of the world, I see this on, on, the, on the web quite a bit, to sort of detach Jesus from the Bible. Um, good luck, because we don't know much of anything about Jesus. You're not going to love Jesus. I know you're really, I'm really into Jesus, but the Word's got some scary stuff in it. I don't know what to do with all that. So we'll just go with Jesus, not the Bible. You don't have Jesus. Not to speak of. Not, not more than a, a smidgen of Jesus. You don't know what his values are. You don't know what he did. All of that comes from Scripture. So we have to try to keep his word. We won't do that perfectly. First John itself says we won't and gives a solution, the blood of Jesus, his atoning sacrifice, um, when we don't. But we're still called to that. And our love will not be perfected if we lose interest or devotion to the word of God. Secondly, it involves loving one another. Perfected, perfected or completed love involves brotherly love. Uh, uh, God's people loving one another sacrificially and selflessly just as He loved us. So in 1 John 4, for instance, verses 11 and 12, He says, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And in the same context, if you remember from last week, He says a remarkable thing, an astounding thing, that God is basically invisible. No one has ever seen God like we're seeing each other right now. And yet when there is brotherly love in a relationship of people, God is manifest in that. The invisible God is made visible. There's a sense in which He's incarnate not only in Jesus, but in our relationship with one another. That makes sense since we are the body of Jesus. We're the hands and feet of Jesus, Paul says repeatedly. We're the body parts of Jesus. He's the head. So if, if, if he incarnates God, there's a sense in which we incarnate God. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3 says we are the house of God, the temple. He's in us. He's dwelling in us. So all of the, both of these things are essential for us to be people who are allowing God to perfect love in us. So that's the two that we talked about last week. I want to talk about two more this morning. The first of which is uh, abiding in love. Perfected love means that we are people who abide in love. Now that may sound like a tautology, like I'm just restating the obvious. It isn't, and you'll see why I think in just a minute. So the text I'm taking this from, and you'll see why we have a little house uh, image up here, um, is from 1 John chapter uh, 4. On, down in verses 16 and 17. Another occasion in 1 John where we see this phrase, love perfected. So let's read it. 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. It says we've come to know and believe this love that He has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides Him. By this, that is abiding in God, by ab abiding in God, by that, love is perfected within us. How do you know if, if God's love is perfected, completed within you? How do you know if you're on a trajectory toward that? Well, it means that you are, you are more and more and more, as time goes by, learning to abide in, uh, in, in God's love. What does that mean? Because this next picture of perfected or fully developed love is, is the person for whom love is where they abide. What does abide mean? Anybody? To reside. To reside. I'm glad you used that word. 
Linda, because that's actually the one I was going to use. Uh, the NIV says to live in. You're a, you're, where you abide is your abode, right? Your domicile. It's your place where you stay. It's your home. And so versions will say things like, most of them just say, we, we live in God. If we live in God, His love is perfected with us. The, the, uh, the uh, <coughs> Net Bible says the one who resides, New English translation says the one who resides in love resides in God by this is love perfected within us. So I want to talk about residing. What does it mean to live in or reside in God's love? How do we live in God's love? All right. Um, think about your house, your apartment, uh, the place that you stay. Your place of residence is, is your resting place. Um, th- 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 this is the place where you can be you. You know, people sometimes say, uh, uh, you've heard the saying, a man's home is his castle. Right? I don't, they don't all seem like castles. Um, but it, it, there's something to be said for that. When things are as they should be, and, and you have a, a solid place to stay, we all know the, the sense of relief and, uh, and rest that can come from that. And when we don't have that situation, we're usually trying to find a situation so we can get back in that. And, and the point being made here is, it's not some specific place. Your residence, if you're having perfected love, if God's love is being perfected, your residence is God's love. That's your home. That's your resting place. That's where you reside. You're so intimately connected to the love of God, you you so get it and feel it and have absorbed it and grasped it, assimilated it into your being, that it's pretty much your address. Where do you live? I live in God's love. Wherever I am, that's my residence. Now, how do we get to that kind of place where we're living inside God's love? Well, I think the answer is in two verbs that he uses in verses 15 and 16. So we have come to know and to believe. There's our two verbs. We've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Do you really know the love that God has for you? I don't mean intellectually. Knowing it like intimately. Do you believe it? Not believe in the idea of God's love. Believe in God's love. God loves you. Do you believe that? Think about your relationship with a spouse or a best friend or uh, a, a sibling or something like that. A parent, a child. It's a, it, there's a difference between believing they love you and uh, believing in the concept of their love for you. And if you don't have the real thing and don't really know the real thing, the, the longing and hurt you feel expresses that delta, that difference between the ideal, the idea of it, and the real thing. He says, this is the real thing. We know and believe the love God has for us. We know it in our bones. We know it in our guts. We feel it. We know it. And that is the answer to this question, how we, become, we come to reside in God's love. God helps us, in fact. If you look, down, uh, look at the, the verses right above this in 1 John, verses 13 and, and through 15, he says that he's given us a couple of aids to help us believe in his love for us. One of them is he's given us his spirit. You know, Acts 2.38 says that any time a person is baptized into Christ, um, they have remission of sins, but they also are given uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God puts his spirit, a, kind of an earnest or a down payment of, of the full presence of God we'll have in eternity with him. And the spirit walks with us and guides us and uh, bears fr- his fruit in our lives and so on. And look what it says in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in it. How do we know that, we, that he's our residence and that he's in us? Because he's given us of his spirit. 
And, we've, and then secondly, we've seen and testify, John writes, that the Father has sent the Son to be Savior of the world. So exhibit two. First, it's the Spirit's indwelling in us. Second, He sent His Son to die to be the Savior of the world. So if you're a person who confesses that truth, that Jesus is who He claimed to be, that He's the Son of God who came to die for your sins, and, and you're willing to line up with that, guess what? You're living in God and God's living in you, and nobody can take that away from you. And that's why he says in verse 16, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And my question is, do we really know and believe that God loves us? Again, not as some intellectual concept, but the kind of knowledge and belief in, in another being's love for you that, that really is the real thing. Let, let's don't play games here. It's not enough to academic to make it all academic and intellectual. You, you've got to know that in your gut. You don't have a, a marriage relationship without that. You don't have any relationship without that. We don't have a relationship with God without that. So I'm, what I'm talking about, folks, is being defined. Nothing less than being defined by God's love for me. The definition of you is mostly about God's love for you. That defines you, if we're getting the right concept here. And if I were truly defined by God's love for me, well, then that would mean that my sense of, of identity, my sense of well-being, my ability to cope with stress, my outlook toward the future. You know, are you, you, you an optimist or a pessimist? My ability to believe in the possibility of people changing. Huh? You, you, do you believe in the power of love to change people or are you a cynic? Because if you don't believe in the power of love to change people, what are you doing? What does it mean to be a Christian? <laughs> Do you believe in transformation? That love is the engine behind transformation? Can that change the world, revolutionize the world? You know, see, all those things are a big indicator to, to how you're defining yourself. Is it the love of God that shapes you and gives you your identity and your outlook and your disposition? Or is it something else? What actually defines us? Let's be honest with ourselves. I'm not asking anybody for a show of hands or a confession. I'm just saying, let's think about this honestly. Let, let this argue with you. Let it hurt a little bit. Because you got a better chance of growing. Is your, your job, is it your work that defines you? I've been preaching for, I don't even remember, Shriek will know the math, I never know the math, 30-ish, 30 plus, I know it's 30 plus years I've been preaching. That means that every single week, with the exception of a handful, I'm prepping lessons of some sort and thinking about lessons beyond that. You know, for every, every week, for 30-something years. That's a big part of what I think of when I think of what I am and who I am. And, but, but my question is, you know, there's going to come a day sometime in the future when I'm not a preacher anymore. Will I cease to have value? Will I have zero worth then? Am I, is there no more me if I'm not preaching? You see my point? A lot of folks define themselves by their work. They are their work. And when their work gets jeopardized, which is where we're all headed, <laughs> you're going to get retired, you're going to retire something. You're going to get fired. I mean, there's just, there's all kinds of things that can happen. That's just not solid. Are you you anymore? Think about what you're doing. What, what kind of fall you're setting yourself up for if you are reducing yourself to your work, your career. In Jesus, you're a lot more than that. Work is very important. God gave us that in creation. It, it's before the fall. It gets distorted by the fall. God gave us work in the beginning. So I'm not trying to denigrate work, but you are more than your career. You are more than your work. And God's love isn't contingent 
upon uh, that to give us an identity. And think of one other thing. As a Christian, you should not be defined by what people think of you. That's another biggie for, like, how are we defined? What's my identity? For a whole lot of folks, it's what other people say about them. Right? It's always been that way. Prior to Facebook likes, prior to, you know, all that. People have all, we're social creatures by, by this way God designed us. We vary, but on some level, we shouldn't be defined by whether people like us or not, or whether people respect me or not. And I'm thinking here of Paul and the Corinthian church. You know, Paul had actually taken the gospel to Corinth in Greece. They were Christians largely because of his efforts to bring them the gospel. And now, and by the time that he writes the second Corinthian letter, a lot of the Corinthians there are casting doubts and even dispersions upon the Apostle Paul and his apostleship. And even his character and, and, and even his sanity. They're saying, you're beside yourself and so on. But I want you to look at his response. He's not defined by that. He's defined by the love of God in Christ for him. Look what he says here in 2 Corinthians 5, 12. He says, we're not commending ourselves to you again. Look, I'm not trying to sell myself to you. I don't need to do that because it doesn't really matter ultimately what you think of me. You're not my ultimate audience. So I'm not trying to commend you again. You need me because I'm an apostle. <laughs> That's God's system, not mine. But he says also, verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, as some of you are saying, if, if we're insane, if we seem crazy, well, we're crazy for God. You see how his whole frame of reference is what God has done, what God is doing, what God's purpose is, how God relates to him. And then he says it in verse 14. It always comes back to love. For, he says, the reason we don't have to worry about all that is the love of Christ is what's controlling us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, Jesus has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, I'm living for somebody other than myself now. And, and, and from now on, verse 16, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, these old sort of standards for how we determine whether somebody's good or bad, likable or not, popular, unpopular, you know, whatever, all, that's just fleshly. We look at human beings, you know, we, we don't really care what humans say anymore. I don't care whether I, uh, you know, Justify myself, he says. I'm not committing myself even. It, it's, it's only what the love of Christ says about us. And I think we need some of that. 1 John 4, uh, 8 through 10, I think, in some way sums this up. God, uh, God's love, because here's the thing. And we're going here next with our, our last point in this, this, uh, this little series. God's love isn't contingent upon you and me. It is true he wants us to be obedient. He wants us to be holy. No question about that. But it is a, a biblical falsehood. Biblically speaking, this would be a falsehood to say, if you don't act right, God isn't going to love you. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. In fact, it teaches the opposite of that. You cannot make God love you anymore, no matter what you do. You can't be so bad that He loves you any, uh, any less. You can't be so good that He loves you anymore. He loves you because He loves you. That's it. That He wants you to respond in a way that perfects that love in you. So you can be with Him forever. And you can be, be fully human, how He designed you to be. And, and enjoy uh, fellowship with Him and His people forever. And, uh, but it's not contingent upon us. It is, his love isn't initiated by us. It's a relationship grounded in the heart and mind of God Himself. That's where it started. That's where it is rooted. Uh, 
the, the world that God remade and is remaking in Jesus Christ, the new creation that the scriptures talk about, that world runs on God's grace, not on our rectitude or our righteousness. It just doesn't. That's not the currency that spins in God's economy. It is grace. All right? So 1 John 4, I think 8 through 10, sums this up. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. It's just who He is. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into this world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God. See, that's what I'm saying. It's not about your righteousness and rectitude. It doesn't start there. It's not fueled by that. This is love. It's not that you loved Him and now He's responding. It's that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what we did. That's what we brought to the table. Sin. And He says, but I love you. I'm going to give you my Son. My only Son. Whom I love. Who's been with me from before time began. Who has done nothing wrong. And all sorts of good. Who created you and the world that, that helps you thrive. I'm going to offer him. He's going to come into your world and live as one of you and die at your hands for your sin. That's the currency that fuels God's economy. But we don't believe that half the time. Or we believe it on paper, but not in our gut. Not, not Tuesday morning. Not Friday night. Not when you have a marital squabble or a problem at work. Or the finances are going south on you. Or you're fighting some addiction. Often, that is just an idea at best. Maybe we don't even have that idea in our head, but a lot of times it's just an idea. It percolates no further than about your jawline from your head. It's not in your heart and your gut and your, your body. And so we need to talk about something else. And it's the fourth expression of love perfected. And that is letting love do what it wants to do. Let it do its work in us. And that is to drive out fear. Letting love, allowing love to cast out all fear. I'm getting this, of course, from you know, the obvious verse, verse 18, right before the verse that says, we love because he first loved us. We read this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, there's our phrase, completed love, matured love, casts out fear. It drives fear away. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let's talk about fear for a few minutes. Why is it that fear is presented as the nemesis of love? Fear is, fear is the, the nemesis of love. Perfect love casts out fear. He doesn't say perfect love casts out. Well, you tell me, what would we typically think would be the opposite of love? What would be its arch rival? Hate. Hatred. Did, did hate become a noun? Just in the, it always freaks me out. It seems to be hatred. But everybody says hate now. I guess it's an, maybe it's always been a noun. I just, it wasn't in Arkansas. It's a verb and a noun now. It always kind of makes me feel like I'm using bad grammar. Hate, hatred, whatever you want to call it, is not presented as the opposite of love. It's not the, the perennial rival of love. That is fear. That place is reserved for fear. So think about fear. Anytime you're fearful, anytime you're anxious, and folks, don't let yourself off the hook by thinking, I'm not afraid. 
I'm gonna, we mean everything from mildly anxious to downright panic attack. All that is what I'm talking about. It's all fear. It's just degrees of the same thing. Okay? I'm including your mild anxieties. You, 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 you don't, you'll get to keep your dignity on this one. We're all scaredy cats. We are. Everybody fears death according to Hebrews. You may say you don't, but maybe you just aren't in touch with your, 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 your mortality. You, we do fear death, Hebrews says, all of us, until Jesus comes and takes that away. But anyway, I want to analyze fear for a minute. And I want you to think of fear. Anytime you experience anxiety or fear or uh, worry or discomfort, you're, you're experiencing what is nothing less than the arch enemy, the arch rival of love. So think it is, it is the joker to Batman. Okay, it's that fundamental. It's been going on that long. How many, I mean, how many incarnations of Batman versus whoever? The Joker, I think, is probably the main one. I, I'm not a comic book guy, but, uh, or, or, or maybe Harry Potter and Lord Voldemort. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. Okay, there's a lot. So, UNC, Duke, you know, <laughs> Seinfeld and Newman. You know, I, I don't know. Newman, probably not up there in that level. But, um, and, and one I really love, I'm going to talk about in a few minutes, is some of you, may not know, but Jean Valjean and uh, Inspector Javert. Do you, do you remember Les Mis? If you've ever seen any of the movies or read Victor Hugo's book or gone to the play, um, that's a, a rivalry that runs throughout their lives in, in many ways. And, and, and fear is the arch nemesis of love. And love is what we're called to. So I'm probably going to have a little series in the near future on kind of the faces of fear. Because if we're better at identifying the enemy, we'll be better at following through with allowing, allowing God to perfect His love in us. But why is fear the opposite of love rather than hatred? Okay? Or any other variant of ill will? Why, why are those not the, the arch nemesis of love? Why is it fear? Well, I think fear is more fundamental than hate. It's more basic. Um, Hate is often something that flows out of fear. You've already got some fear or anxiety, and that, that sort of uh, turns in, over time it turns into fear. I dislike that person for not respecting me. You know, I hate that person. They, they disrespect me. But it's because I so dread being disrespected in the first place. If you didn't care about that, who would care? But you do. So you have some strong ill will toward the person who disrespects you. Anybody ever experienced that? I hate that clique because they exclude me. But it's because social exclusion scares the daylights out of me. I cannot bear to be excluded. I loathe those kinds of people, quote unquote, because I fear they're changing my culture. But you have some kind of weird need to have your culture stay the way you've always been used to it when culture hasn't stayed the same ever for millennia. And why do you get to determine the culture? I hate that because it threatens my comfy lifestyle. I hate this because it weakens my control of some situation. And not being in control makes me so anxious. See what I'm saying? Fear lies often behind our strong dislike, our mild dislike, our hate. It's often fear that's driving it. And did you hear the words, the pronouns that were in all those examples I gave? Me. My, mine, me, me. Fear is very absorbed with the self. It's worried about yours truly. You could almost define fear as not trusting, the lack of trust that, that 
that you will be okay. The lack of trust, the lack of deep belief and confidence that your needs are going to be taken care of in any and all of your dimensions. Don't be limited on this. They could be spiritual. They could be physical. They could be emotional. It could be your social reputation. It could be your relationships. Any of that, if it's not going to be okay, and I don't trust deep down that it's going to be okay, what results from that is fear. On some level, maybe strong fear, maybe mild fear. You may be able to mask it and nobody knows. But we're just going to call all of that fear. Love, on the other hand, isn't focused on the self at all. You know this, if you know anything about the Bible, love is other-oriented. It sacrifices self, even, for others. It focuses on helping or advancing the well-being of other people. My spouse, my children, my fellow church members, uh, my neighbors, people in my community. They're who I'm concerned about, not me, if I'm defined by love. And I want to tell you something, if you're mainly concerned about you and your well-being, you're going to be characterized by fear. Because you're not God and you can't control it. So bad things are going to happen. Then what? Well, the then what is fear. You go into survival mode like a, an injured, cornered animal. And all you got is to scrawl, a scratch and claw and fight and run and hide and spin and market, right? And pretense and all the other stuff. It's all driven by fear because fear is what comes into the world, into your life, into your heart when love isn't there. And fear will always weaken our capacity for love. We're called to love in our homes, in the community, in our church. And I'll tell you something. To the extent that we're characterized by fear, not by love, we will not be able to follow that, that mandate, that divine mandate. We won't be able to imitate our God. Fear is, is death to love. It weakens the capacity for love. Let me share with you a quote from David, uh, a guy named David Benner, who's a psychiatrist and a, a believer. Um, so it's kind of a theology, psychology book. He says, fear breeds control. People who live in fear feel compelled to remain in control. There's a close connection between the need to control and anxiety or fear, he's saying. They attempt to control themselves, and they attempt to control their world. Often, despite their best intention, this spills over into efforts to control other people. But here's the paragraph I want you to notice. Fear also blocks responsiveness to others. The fearful person may appear deeply loving, but fear always interferes with the impulse toward love. Energy invested in maintaining safety and comfort for yourself must inevitably deplete energy available for loving others. I don't know how that's not ever true. Fear and love are mutually exclusive because fear is focused on yourself. And love's focused outside yourself on others. Think about it this way. Each of us, oh wow, you can't even see the top of that. Sorry about that. That's a heart. Can you, well you can right here. Can y'all see the line on the top? Oh, that one, that one. Whoa, it's coming up now. There's something wrong with my brain. Like it's resolving as we speak. Anyway, okay, great, it's a heart. Um, I, all I saw was a red triangle back here at the beginning, and I was like, whoa. So that, think of your heart as a tank. It, it's a tank of well-being. Uh, a love tank, if you will. Now, either that tank will be filled full with love, right? So you got a little gauge, it looks like that. Or if it's not, fear will move in to fill the vacuum. Fear, fear has to fill up the vacuum. 
Because you're designed to need shalom, to need well-being. And if God isn't doing it, who, guess who gets to do it? If you don't believe that God's doing it, then that leaves you. And that's going to just be fearful. That's where you're going to end up. You can play the game for a while, and sometimes if you have enough privilege growing up and enough people in your camp and you're smart enough and, you know, got some resources, it won't look like you are, but you still are. For other people, they, it's just more evident more quickly. They weren't given the same hand you were. And you can throw character in if you want to and go with the myth that everything good is because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. The problem with that is it runs 180 against what the Bible says. It just starts off with we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Now what? Okay? So that's kind of the picture I want you to think of. And if we are people who have an empty love tank, then when we begin to have a relationship with another person, be it a, a spouse, people and the rest of our family, a church, a church family, our community, guess what we bring to that relationship? It won't be an ability to love and serve their needs because your tank's empty. Instead, you're going to bring a bundle of your own unfulfilled needs. You're an empty tank looking to be fulfilled. If I could just have a relationship with this person, that person will be my, our language betrays us, soulmate, savior. Whoa, these are, that's for Jesus. But that's what we do. Because we're wired to need that kind of ultimate security and shalom. And if we come empty, then we're going we're gonna to make other people feel like, you know, you've got to fill me up here. God says you need to be full, overflowing at the top with His love so that you're, you're able to go serve and love others. You can't do that on an empty tank. And that's where knowing and believing the Word of God comes. And if we don't do that, we're going to be people of fear. The only one who can truly fill our love tank is God. But for far too many Christians, think about this, folks. When you think of God, you, when the average person out on the street hears the word God, or even often, if we're honest, church people might even be some of the worst offenders in general. You hear the word God and Christianity or righteousness or the Bible or some religious word, gospel, what a whole lot of people think of. I, I would be willing to, to, to bet, uh, not money because I, I took a few math courses, stupid, but, you know, um, I would, I'd be willing to guess that the majority of people, when they hear words like religion, God, Christ, Bible, they think basically God's system, that Christianity, is a system of you do the right things and you get rewarded. You do the bad things and you get the opposite of reward. It's basically a merit. It's kind of karma. <laughs> karma with Jesus. Wow. That's not the God. That's not good news. That's bad news. If we all get what we deserve, that's bad news. But a lot of Christians, when we think of God, His love for us, His unconditional love for us, is hardly the first thing that comes to mind. All kinds of other stuff comes to mind. Let me share with you one more short quote from this guy, David Benner. He says, referring to an old Einstein quote, the great physicist Einstein, Einstein stated that one of the most important questions facing every individual is whether or not the universe is friendly. Is the, friendly, is the universe basically good and friendly or is it basically hostile? It would appear that for the majority of human history, most people have not believed that it is friendly. The gods seem to be either indifferent or hostile to humans. In either case, they seem to require appeasement, something to get their attention and earn their favor. Religion based on appeasing the gods is not restricted to less developed countries and non-Western cultures. Don't think that. Don't give yourself that pass. Even among Christians, the love they believe to characterize God 
Now notice this, folks. Often does not seem to translate well from theory into practice. Their God is a God, still a God. Their God is still a God who requires appeasement. He's up there angry. He needs you to bring certain things. And maybe, if it's good enough, he'll give you what you need. He needs to be appeased. Not so unlike pagan gods. Two other famous rivals, and then we're going we're gonna to wrap this up. Who are, um, not the actors, it's Russell Crowe and uh, Hugh Jackman. Who, who, are the, who are the characters they're playing here? Anybody know? I gave it away earlier. Shouldn't have done that. If I hadn't have done, Don Prue would have thought that's Wolverine dressed up in 19th century garb. <laughs> it's not Wolverine. That's Jean Valjean and then Inspector Javert. They're, they're, they're rivals in, in Les, Mis, Les, Les Miserables. Like for, you know, the book's like a thousand pages. The only person I've ever known who's read the book is Kevin. No, I stopped reading it because it was unreadable. Okay, yeah. <laughs> There's a reason it's digested so many times because it's like that big and goes everywhere. But anyway, the basic storyline that gets picked up in the movies is, is beautiful. And I would really recommend that you watch. That's the musical version, but there was one with Liam Neeson if you don't like songs. Um, they're both awesome because it's basically the gospel story. Now, Jean Valjean, on your right, your left, actually my left, everybody's left. <laughs> um, he's a criminal. He's a criminal on the run. And he, very early in the story, um, and he's got a really bad past, a horrific trying past. You have a lot of empathy for him, right? And very early in the story, he's, he's allowed to stay with this, I think it's a priest or somebody at a, at a, a Catholic cathedral or something in his par little parsonage. Or maybe he's a, a, I don't know what his role is in the church, some kind of churchly person. And Jean Valjean is very hungry, he's very poor, and he steals a loaf of bread. I'm probably getting the details wrong because it's been a while since I saw it, but I've seen, I've seen it. But something like this. He gets caught, and instead of that religious figure throwing the book at him, he lets him keep the bread, gives him some other valuable stuff in a bag, and says, just go ahead, just go along. Like, you can have not only my bread you stole, but you can have these candlesticks that you can maybe sell somewhere, you know, that kind of thing. So he shows him grace. The guy's caught in the act, and he shows him grace. And the whole rest of the story is Jean Valjean, who, who through luck and, and providence maybe, ends up in a pretty high position, a you know, person of means and, and some professional success and all this. But his whole rest of his life is he's transformed by that act of grace. And he's, he's showing other people grace and building other people up and coming to the rescue of weak people everywhere. He's transformed by a gift of grace because that's what he got instead of the book thrown at him. Well, this inspector Javert pursues him through the whole of the book. He's a cop and then he's later the inspector and he, he represents sort of, in my view, I don't know if this is what Hugo was going for, but like the embodiment of legalism. He is dedicated to the law like nobody's business. And he knows that Jean Valjean, and he's right, was a criminal. And he hasn't been punished for that one thing. And uh, at one point, Jean Valjean even, even saves the inspector's life, but he's still recalcitrant. He's, he's like, nope, he, did, he has to, everybody must pay the price. Justice must prevail. Order and justice. That's his universe. And they, they have this showdown along the, the banks of the Seine River in Paris at the end. And 
there's this soliloquy, I think it's there somewhere in it, where Inspector Javert, his mind is blown. It's just blowing up his world that somebody could be that transformed by grace without having to pay the price for their wrong. And so he basically says, I am the law, and the law will not be mocked. Now, doesn't that sound godly? Doesn't that just sound so holy and righteous? What happens is he commits suicide, throws himself in the river. And that's what always happens. When we interpret God in terms ultimately of we better get our act together, because if we don't, we don't have God's love. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And it's nothing less than that. And it's a really powerful weapon because it's a distortion of righteousness. That's the best kind, right? We'll, we'll, let, we'll make self-help look like rectitude and holiness. We will not do that, the Bible says. We should try. And I'm not saying there's no line on the other side. I'm just saying at the end of the day, if you and I don't believe that God loves us like crazy and wants to show us grace and transform us, perfect His love through grace, then we're, we're headed to theological religious suicide. Like, like Inspector Javert. If you're a lay Miz nerd, I probably just botched the story a little bit. I don't really care. That's the gist. It's ish. Big ish on that. Been a while. Okay. Uh, so we need to meditate on promises that God makes to that effect. And I'm, I'm not going uh, to read um, the last two things because we're out of time here. Um, but I do want to invite you, if you're interested in the gospel, uh, for whatever reason, because of things we've said today or things you've been hearing in general, your own Bible reading or whatever, and you're interested in, in coming to Jesus and learning what that a life in discipleship to Jesus looks like. You want some of this love that God showed us all in Christ when He gave Himself up for us. We want to help you with that as best we can. We, we don't Personally, none of us is, is, is close to perfect, but we believe His Word is, and it can guide us to that relationship. So we'd love to talk with you about it, set up a Bible study, pray with you. You've got to let one of us know is all, and we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Uh, and we're going to sing a song now. And while we stand and sing, anybody who has a need, please come to one of these chairs and, and let us know what it is. Let's stand and sing.